to look into the ideas of the theories of hidden power and how hidden power, especially in the gaze of heteronormativity, manifests itself in smudging the visibility of trans and queer persons who are within climate change, global movements of climate justice. Hello everyone, welcome to In Conversation, a listening series on climate justice and collective liberation, an initiative of our climate voices. Over the next few months and weeks and years, we're bringing together leaders from the climate movement and broader fights for social, economic, and racial justice to be in conversation. About how we can build deep relationships and coalitions across struggle to achieve collective liberation, growth, and transformation. I'm your host, Philip Brown. And I'm your host, Aletta Brady. On this episode, we brought together five queer and trans climate justice organizers to dialogue about how our struggles for queer and trans liberation connect with our fights for climate justice. We dialogue across borders, across time and space, from California to Botswana, and held space for deep, vulnerable conversation, exploring our visions for a movement rooted in queer and trans solutions to the climate crisis we face. Solutions that uplift communities and chosen families of unconditional love, support, and resiliency. But before we dive in, Aleta, I'm so grateful to be working with you over the past few weeks on this project. And I can't wait for us to continue building together and holding space together. But would you want to introduce yourself and our climate voices and what brings you to In Conversation before we begin? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Aletta. And first of all, Philip, let me just say I'm so grateful to be in this space with you and to be hosting this with you. Um, This particular episode is really personal and important to me. I'm a queer femme fluid organizer originally from Minneapolis. And I come to this space because I understand intimately what it's like to lose a family support system because of who I am and because of who I love. And I come to the climate movement from a place of not wanting anyone to feel that they won't be supported or cared for during times of climate emergency or disaster. I've worked in movement spaces for a long time now. I'm currently the executive director of Our Climate Voices, which is a youth-led storytelling platform that's centering the voices and solutions of the people and communities that are most impacted by the climate disaster. I founded Our Climate Voices in 2017 to root the movement in real people and real solutions and to bring attention to the urgency and reality that climate change is happening now and impacting many of our communities and loved ones. For me, In Conversation is about allowing space for vulnerable conversation in a way that's less scripted and performative than other forms of digital media. Allowing space for authentic, honest, and vulnerable conversation that happen in so many in-person movement spaces and allowing for some of that openness when we connect with each other online. We know that so much knowledge and healing is rooted in vulnerable conversation. So I'm really grateful and excited to be here. And with that, Philip, do you want to tell people a little, about, a little bit about yourself and about your background? Yeah, thank you for the beautiful introduction to the project. Um, but I'm Philip Brown, and I'm a queer, non-binary firm, a climate justice organizer, originally hailing from Kingston, Jamaica. Um, and I would say I've been in movement for a long time now, given that I've been fighting for survival, for freedom since birth. Um, since today, I realized I couldn't move freely in my body because of binary constructs of gender because of gender roles that told me I had to behave in a certain way to belong, to feel loved. And more recently, this fight has brought me to the climate justice movement, specifically the youth climate justice movement, because I realize even though some of the most vulnerable to climate crises, our struggles for survival are often forgotten or lost because of rampant homophobia, transphobia, and queerphobia. 
Um, in Jamaica specifically, queer and trans youth are experiencing heightened rates of homelessness, are often left to live in the sewers and you know gullies running under running in the underbelly of Kingston. And so, you know, when I think about hunger, stronger hurricanes, floods, increasing temperatures, I think about Black queer youth like me who weren't fortunate enough to flee those circumstances to move to the U.S. Um, and who are going to be the ones who are most impacted in, in, during times of crisis. And so on this episode, um, we really wanted to uplift those struggles by bringing together some of our closest chosen family from across the world. Yeah, let's dive into the beautiful conversation that we had together. And thank you for joining us today. Five, four, three, two, one, or live. Um, my name is Mira Rani. Um, I'm based in Brussels, Belgium, but I'm from Pakistan. And I've been involved in this work, so I guess I don't know if you'd considered me a movement elder, but I guess I am. <laughs> I've been involved in climate justice work for over 20 years as a part of government delegations or even NGOs. And in these spaces, what I find lacking is the inclusivity of um, other movements and other issues. I just find it very, um, so far, it's been a very bubbled space. So I always feel like I can't be my whole self and can't bring my whole self into the work that I'm doing. So that's why I'm trying to create some challenges. Hi, everyone. My name is Gabby Benavente. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am um, currently living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the U.S. I'm originally from Peru, Callao, Peru, but lived um, most of my life in um, Miami. Sort of like my history in the U.S. And I think that just like what draws me to this work or like my place in this movement just comes from someone who's lived in Miami, coastal area, really prone, vulnerable to climate change, just seeing tons and tons of people like there's quite a lot of climate gentrification happening in Miami and and a lot of folks are being pushed out so I'm thinking a lot about that and trying to bring that into like a space historically not been very kind or inclusive towards trans and queer folks folks of color so yeah that that's what draws me to do this work and I hope that I can continue building great conversations with all of you Hey everybody, my name is Orion Camaro. My pronouns are they, him, hers. And what brings me to this work uh, started, it started off doing a lot of work against um, water privatization here in the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta, I'm calling in from Oakland, occupied Ohlone territory. And yeah, it started with trying to fight massive like agribusiness and fossil fuel companies from extracting the rivers next to my hometown. And from there, I kind of got more involved in trying to see the connections between the extractive nature of those corporations to other social issues my organizing originally started as a response to kind of the gang culture and poverty and drug abuse in my hometown. One of the things that I think is super crucial as being part of the climate justice conversation is seeing the links between social, economic, and ecological struggles. Some of the ways that I do that is also through creative visual storytelling through the California Allegory, which is the project I'm working on. My name is Sophia Benrood. My pronouns are she and they. I am from 
and I currently live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but I've lived in other places before. I come to this work through more of like a healing perspective. Also, my family is um, farmers by trade on one side. And then my other side of my family is Black Liberation. There is a very serious um, interconnection here <laughs> of the two. I work mainly on like queer and trans birth work collective stuff um, through a group called Sprouting Birth Boat. And I also have been trained as an herbalist. I also work for an organization called Black Visions Collective. So I've been working on a lot of different stuff right now. Definitely been fighting line three for the last like three years now. My name is Marata Mutamai. I am from Botswana. I am a developmental, I call myself a digital developmentalist. And I focus on intersections of development for holistic and inclusive development in Africa. I run a Pan-African blog called The Afrolutionist, being the African solutionist. And we discuss um, similar issues of, of intersectional development. And with regards to climate change and climate justice, um, I'm also a, a young feminist um, for climate change digital storyteller. And I basically share different stories of how different small organizations, feminist organizations, mitigating climate change. And my pronouns are she and her and they, and o, which is a gender neutral pronoun from in my language in Susana. Oh, thank you all for sharing those beautiful introductions. Um, with that, we'll move into the first question. And I'll start by sharing a little bit of my personal story and connect that to the question. So as I mentioned before, I grew up in Jamaica for 18 years. Um, in Kingston, a city, our capital city, and I migrated to the States in 2016. And after, a year after I moved here, Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico and caused widespread devastation, wiping out um, communities across the island. Meanwhile, the US and others around the world were very slow to respond to the crisis. And so that prompted me as a climate justice organizer to think about who, in the case that Jamaica, you know, my home country, is hit by a hurricane, who was going to be most impacted. And um, as a Black queer youth who grew up in the island, I think that when I thought about the, you know, the homelessness and other forms of violence that we're experiencing, I thought about the fact that if it is that we do have climate crisis, which is inevitable, Black queer youth are the ones who are going to be the most impacted or at least directly impacted. And so that prompted me to think more about climate justice really tied to queer and trans liberation connect that to my own personal story of being in the movement and fighting for a full expression of myself through the work. And so how do you all imagine queer and trans liberation being connected to climate justice in terms of, you know, how are queer and trans youth being most impacted? How can we shape the solutions being put forward for climate change? Yeah, what do you see as the intersections and connection between queer and trans liberation and climate justice? Um, Sophia, she, they, again. When I think about the intersections, I actually think about something super basic and simple as healing and trauma and transitions and the fluidity and beauty of being queer <laughs> and the beauty of having choice and the power of that and um, how all of what is connected in our bodies is also connected to what's surrounding us and how climate change is just a symptom of the fact that we don't aren't taken care of and that our people aren't taken care of. And so if we look at the climate within ourselves, we can directly see 
um, how that's affecting the environment around us. And so I deeply consider that and think about that when it is intersecting with queer liberation because of the fact that we as people are the most forgotten people. <laughs> um, and we are the people that like time and time again have been erased and time and time again have been um, put in circumstances that are unhealthy that are dangerous and time and time again these are the people that are outside of the structure outside of the system and have pushed themselves and have um, this beautiful you know effervescence to them that is there and can be shared with the world and is not has been failed to be acknowledged and that's the problem that everyone is so stuck in this like system in this structure when really we just need to be more fluid and care and heal and grow together and commune and so i think that that's my like intersection with climate and queerness is the beauty growth healing of like the earth around us and the interconnections with ourselves Sophia, can I follow up on that real quick? That was really beautiful. And I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit more to the ways in which you see the climate within ourselves impacting the climate outside of ourselves. I see everything interconnected as in like, so I'm also a chef. I went to school, culinary school, and I do like a lot of food justice stuff and even the impact on food in our bodies and um, how we've been so disconnected, like pharmaceutical companies are responsible for climate change too, and how we've been disconnected to our backyards and the plants and the herbs and the medicine that surrounds us. And climate change is affecting our food, right? And our food is our health. Our food is what we intake, what we eat. If our food has no soul, then how are we feeding ourselves and being able to grow? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for just asking that sort of like very important question Philip like thinking about those intersections at least for me as someone who is a migrant to the U.S. and I think about other folks that are currently migrating across the U.S.-Mexico border thinking a lot about the various like queer and trans people that are engaging in that journey trying to migrate into the U.S think about just like the vulnerabilities of that, like how vulnerable a lot of trans women are uh, who are placed in immigrant detention centers, uh, male, male facilities, uh, cis male facilities. And I think that um, just seeing that connection between sort of like trans and queer migrants, mostly migrants of color who are migrating because of climate change, because climate change is heightening migration just makes me makes me sad and sort of like makes me think about other other fellow migrants like myself and who are currently trying to alter that system and survive um yeah it's it's a question that i've carried with me for most of my life mostly because of um not having the spaces within the movement to bring those two together um, it's just that the movement feels very closed off and also because, like Gabby said, it's people of color that are impacted the most. There are concepts, which I don't want to use jargon, but concepts like environmental racism. There's so much research um, on that and that exists within all continents. It, it's not just about the U.S. It's um, the way co uh, colonialism has impacted a lot of countries in the global south. 
and then the repercussions of that. And because a lot of policymaking, me having been in the EU for so many years, I've had the vantage point of seeing how top-down uh, policymaking is um, and how paternalistic and imperialistic it is. Just taking the example of the straw ban, um, how people just grabbed onto it. And while, yes, it's great to ban straws, there was no intersectionality involved in the analysis for such policymaking. Um, there was no analysis of how it affects people, um, disabled people. There was no analysis of how it affects poor people. And there was no analysis of how it affects uh, people who are from migrant communities. So for me, the more involved over the years, my involvement in policymaking just made it uh, from a personal perspective, but also from that perspective, it just made it very, very pertinent that all the movements are connected. And also to have the variety of voices, um, even when we see people making the decisions and making the policies, a lot of the spaces, even for countries in the global south, are dominated by white consultants, um, are dominated by specific groups. And so um, it's just very exclusive. It's an exclusive bubble. And for me, um, that's why it's not just the analysis, but how the policies are then implemented and decisions are made. It all has to be a part of the process. Orion, would you like to go next? Yeah, thanks, Philip. And thank you, everyone, for your like contributions to this. Um, really beautiful answers and um, I resonate with a lot of what has been shared. Yeah, I think when it comes down to the connections between climate justice and queer and trans liberation, I think you know, I'd like to expand on folks um, what has already been shared. For one, to start just the piece around colonialism. Um, I think that, you know, for me, uh, as someone who is Filipinx um, and, you know, has looked into, recently I've been doing a lot of work looking into like ancestral histories and learning about um, the Babylons, which are these pre-colonial indigenous peoples of the Philippines. And a lot of their beliefs really centered on animism and seeing seeing connections to ourselves and our ecological systems and also were uh, gender transcendent when we're able to navigate being able to see beyond the binary to see the harmonious connections between feminine and masculine energy and colonization totally demonized and disrupted um, those cultures and ways of being. I think that same pattern of extraction and creating the, the rigid conf like conformities of society, I think has disabled our abilities to, to see beyond the illusion of modern late stage capitalism that like, that we are, you know, that water is a commodity that is trivial or, you know, and not see it for the sacred life force that it is or think of ourselves too. I think um, speaking to uh, what um, Sophia was saying also about how there are these boxes of, of, of systems that we're placed in. I think queer people have um, the historical trauma and the vantage point to see and fill in the gaps of disconnection that I think modern society has like enabled through not being able to see the lens of gender transcendence and just being able to 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 find that harmonious point between um, those two energies I think is is a source of a lot of what is going on with um, the greed in our society right now there is is so much to say uh, around you know, like the connections between, say, for example, toxic masculinity and the ways that that's shown up um, on a large scale 
um, with like the Me Too movement and things like that. And that is directly contributed by this con- like almost um, insatiable um, desire for power that I think is also the cause for a lot of extraction and development that is um, causing the destruction in our in our world. I see that, you know, queer and trans communities, I think, have an opportunity to bring light to those conversations and be able to offer a perspective of connection that I don't think others um, can in the context of climate change, because we do need complex perspectives um, that can really, like, highlight those pieces. And I think that, you know, we play one critical piece in the complex reality that is our climate crisis so bearing on the intersectionalities of of uh, queer persons and climate and climate justice and rather climate change i focus a lot on to i can't help but answer this question with with the context of what's happening today right with um reference to cyclone Idai and how many people have been displaced in mozambique as well as zimbabwe and malawi and i think of the queer persons who essentially aren't necessarily considered. So we have two levels of, two layers of um, injustice. One for the fact that climate uh, migrants aren't necessarily considered climate migrants um, in the SADC region, which is the Southern African region. It's predominantly a focus on political or economic migration, but displacement through climate, through climate-based events is a real thing. It needs to be considered. And even when you think of queer persons who, where, where they're living currently, they're still under siege because of the lack of recognition, because of the, as Orion has stated about colonization, the colonial laws that were placed in Africa and the colonial legacy of queer phobia in all, in all facets, right? What happens to their, to their lives? How do they navigate um, being climate migrants? So I, 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 I can't help but consider one major issue within Africa being internal displacement based off of climate change and what happens particularly to queer persons. Because even as, as Orion said, oh, I'm from Botswana um, and a lot of us in the Southern African region with specifications to South Africa, Namibia and, and Botswana are either descendants or are the pe- descendants of the people of the first kind, being the, the Kukon persons, the Khoi persons, and the San persons, of which also are very gener- generalized names coming from very zoological point of view. And there's so much diversity within um, being a descendant of the person of the first kind and um, how through its own spirituality and culture, uh, there was a lot of transcendence in gender. Um, that's why, for example, Sezwana doesn't have a gender-specific pronoun. We have gender-neutral pronouns, essentially. And the only um, gendered form you would see would be the prefixes of names, right? So when I think of queerhood and queer persons, I essentially, I think of how we mitigate climate disasters in a neo-colonial, in a post-colonial, neoliberal, neoliberalized, um, neo-colonial Africa. And how we would have um, mitigated such issues if the world was a little bit more genderqueer because the so many identities which are focused on binaries of gender have really problematized the way in which we live our lives and the way in which a lot of people navigate their lives politically, environmentally, psychologically, spiritually. So when we look in the decolonization or the decolonial process in Africa, we should also look towards decolonizing gender. 
Yeah, I, I, this is Mira again. I just wanted to um, just speak to that because um, colonization impacted not only how we live our lives, but also how we care for each other. And I feel that's also what's different about queer and trans communities. The way we care about each other is something that we need to reteach the world again. Um, the way our communities come together um, have survived through so much and the systems of care that we've created for each other just go beyond uh, the binary world that we exist within, the colonized world that we exist within, the, the polarized capitalist white supremacist world that we're taught to live within. But um, queer trans communities always push back on those and Sophia said that we always exist outside of these boxes. And I think because we live outside, we care for each other in different ways and we build community in different ways. And for me, it's important to bring that um, into the forefront because there's so much that we can teach the world. Oh my God, Mira, <laughs> this is Philip again. Um, that was so beautiful and I appreciate how you are connecting across these dialogues of what colonialism has really uh, you know, shifted. For our, for our different societies and cultures. Um, and for me, I want to talk more about living outside that box because climate justice really for me is rooted in how are we shifting our relationship to the earth to move away from extraction, exploitation, you know, an endless and endless consumption. How are we moving away from that towards regeneration, towards community, towards collective being and sharing and leaning in for support, right? And how Mira just described queer and trans communities in terms of how we move towards family structures that are rooted in community. We move towards supporting each other. If there's a crisis, if there's any form of harm, you know, my queer and trans family is always with me to support me through that. And when I think of a climate just world, I'm really thinking of a world that's embracing queer identity and queer experience. I'm just appreciating how we are all bringing a different piece of that to the conversation. I'm feeling really deeply grateful for this space and for this, this conversation. And I think that it's a really important one. And like, it's been, you know, I feel like I've had uh, conversations around queer and trans liberation offline amongst friends and community and um, in some organizing spaces, but it feels really powerful to be all here together talking about this. I think it's so important. And for me, like so much of, you know, when I started thinking about these intersections, um, without getting into uh, too many personal details, but for me, like the moment where I lost family, um, when I was honest about who I was and then realizing sort of the vulnerability that um, queer and transness creates in so many places that I think in uh, mainstream society are seen as like safety, you know, family, community, places where you're supposed to be able to like fall back onto, lean back onto, sort of disappeared overnight and understanding what that means when we face a world where there is increasing vulnerability, there are increasing natural disasters, there are increasing unpredictable events. Um, and then you have communities that are so often ostracized, not just by family, but by community and by the public. And I think Gabby maybe touched on this as well. And when you have folks migrating and um, encountering maybe emergency responders who aren't familiar with queer and trans communities and people and, and what that means. And so for me, really coming at this from a place of wanting to create systems and structures and, and chosen family and community that will provide that safety net and that sense of support when we're faced with 
with the impacts of climate change and the vulnerabilities that sort of the natural world is creating. So I think moving to the next question um, and sort of the urgency and calls to action that are being created, particularly amongst young people worldwide, like how do we ensure, how do we create spaces where the queer and trans struggle and experience is centered? I think then you all have laid out really um, beautifully why that's so important and like how do we make sure that the movement is centering queer and trans experience and wisdom as we are building towards solutions and how do we make sure that the solutions we're creating are coming directly from um, communities that are most impacted. Um, I would love to hear um, all of your thoughts on that. Yeah, essentially for the first for the first bit, what we're seeing, particularly in the global south in Africa, right? Um, when you look at the the movement of like the high school striking and a lot of people from the global north taking um, climate action, there is that loss of disconnect and communication essentially between the global north and global south, right? And there are very basic privileges that are overstated, that are understated, that create that loss of communication. For example, there is a privilege of high school kids being able to strike. And through, through that is that visibility of the human rights to education and how um, not everybody has that access of education and or literacy. And there are other forms of how um, people are taking climate action in Africa that is not essentially focused on media or is not necessarily attracted on media. And I'll give a very brief example. For example, we have high school students in taking climate action are focusing on um, engaging in climate-based hackathons. And those hackathons are aimed to create actual solu like solutions for mitigating climate change issues such as um, water scarcity, right? But I do appreciate that in, in the global north, the climate, the 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 the, the action that is is taking is is proving to be more of a focus on um, governments in the global north, which also affects us as well. So that's how I see the connection happening with regards to the centering visibility or creating spaces that center visibility of queer and trans persons with regards to climate justice. I think the essential idea where spaces need to be created might be a little bit problematic in the assumption that um, I think what we need to do is, is look at how they're being erased, right? Because there's an existence, there's an existence there that where um, hidden power within heteronormativity is erasing queer and trans experiences in the, in the climate justice movement. And I also consider how, for an example, uh, the, the, the hidden power of heteronormativity is being that when you are queer, a part of the queer community and or trans, the major aim is to create some form of self-invisibility um, through adapting to heteronormativity in order to one, survive, but also in order to be more of an activist, right? Because these aren't necessarily the safest, depending on which country you live in in Africa. It is also depending on how safe you can be as an activist, a queer activist within climate change spaces. So really, in my perspective, I'm, I look towards the able to, the ability to um, be safe before we are activists and also the ability to, through hidden power, utilize other forms of activism to have people speak on our behalf. Of, and I know it's not necessarily a, a common thing to do, but to speak on our behalf in spaces where it's unsafe for us to be able to speak. So social media is a good tool for that. 
and any kind of engagement. I mean, black Twitter is also a part of African Twitter, you know, uh, African-American Twitter, um, the Twitter of it, found in West Indies, we found ourselves to be in one space. We could still be able to utilize that space to um, share our own issues of climate justice. But really it is that, like, to look into the ideas of the theories of hidden power and how hidden power, especially in the gaze of heteronormativity, manifests itself in smudging the visibility of trans and queer persons who are within climate change, global movements of climate justice. Thank you, Mbathi. That was amazing. Um, and uh, really, really enlightening. Thank you so much for those thoughts. Uh, to speak to this, these questions that are being posed, um, I'll speak first to how do we make sure queer and trans struggle is part of the conversation. Um, and I think it just comes from having a, a stronger and more visible intersectional lens for folks to engage with the global climate crisis um, as being made up of multiple systems of oppression um, impacting people. Um, just the same as like, for example, in my hometown, we have a dried riverbed that runs right along the downtown um, of Stockton. And that dried riverbed is an example of kind of the encroaching mass extinction and the, and the destruction of our waterways. But also there's homeless encampments that are within that riverbed showing the disposability and the extraction that's happening um, socially in terms of communities that are seen as, you know, not worthy of, of, livable lifestyle. So I think when we think about that, we really need to understand the social implications of a climate crisis that is impacting the most marginalized, which include queer and trans communities. And I think that that is, is something that needs to be talked about. The conversation needs to expand. And I think um, for the longest time, I think I can only speak to my experience here in the U.S., but, you know, for the longest time, mainstream culture has really been held from the frame primarily of um, cisgender white identity. And that many stories that have been told, many um, academic research, a lot of the ways in which we have viewed the world has been through that that singular lens. And I think we live in an increasingly internationalized society where um, there is a massive opportunity for grassroots knowledge sharing that can happen from many different perspectives. Queer and trans identities being one really valuable piece um, for all the reasons that were, were stated before. But, you know, I think that um, it comes from how are we able to ensure that those voices are uplifted and held as the... Um, as we continuously have simultaneous narratives coming about, how are we ensuring that those narratives are not lost and forgotten as uh, what was shared before, I think is a massive start in the right direction of being able to harness collective wisdom to achieve collective liberation. The second question um, that was posed, which was how do we make sure solutions to climate crises come directly from those directly impacted? I think that is something that I think all of us have been thinking about for a long time, organizing for climate justice, uh, because we live in a political climate where corporations have um, massive amounts of power and uh, governments are incredibly corrupt. Um, and those that are carrying the most power um, are having the most decisions, are having the strongest influence over decisions rather than those that are most impacted. So I think what 
I mean, I feel like I would rather open the conversation than have a clear answer because I don't have one. Um, but I do think that it comes down from being able to mobilize um, across identity to build power to hold corporations accountable in governments. Um, because at this current, in this current lit, like time that we live in, um, the conversations are emerging and they are happening, but where how that gets translated into policy, how that gets translated into um, social public accountability, I think comes in the form of many things, whether it's um, creative resistance, where there's narratives that are being popularized by uh, producing art and, and a social commentary on those, whether it's nonviolent direct actions, whether it's public hearings where we hold our governments accountable. Um, there are a number of venues um, and I believe that a spectrum of them all is required to build the world that we we want um, and make sure that those that are most impacted have um, the strongest voice at the table. But I'd love to hear what others have to have to say about that. Thank you all for just like feeling this room with so much like, I feel like I'm learning so much as I'm listening. And I'm really appreciative of that of, because I feel like everyone's just bringing such a such a unique perspective that is grounded in one's own life experience. So I'm really grateful towards that. And I guess when I think about this question of how do we ensure queer and trans people are part of the conversation, I remember like a time in my life, it might have been a few years ago, where everybody um, all over social media was like praising Pope Francis uh, for basically calling for climate action. And what a lot of people missed um, or didn't say what a lot of my white, cis, and straight uh, environmental activist friends did not mention was that a few days later, he called uh, being trans ideological colonization. Um, those were his exact words. And he also said that it was being trans was against nature. And therefore, this idea of protecting nature was not grounded in protecting trans people who are very much a part of nature. So for me, I think about the audacity of a man who's the head of this institutional that has engaged in colonialism for so long in my home country, Peru, and then has is a part of an institution that has been responsible for erasing trans and queer people out of existence. Just thinking about that, uh, the irony and the anger that arises from that and thinking about the fact that if maybe like there were, if only queer and trans voices were heard more, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We wouldn't be taking advice from someone who is positioning us against the very nature that we're trying to take care of and the very nature that we're trying to love. So I think that just to answer the first person, the, the first question, it really goes to uh, making sure that we no longer tolerate it's this idea that we're somehow unnatural uh, or like outside of like nature, that we're very much a part of nature and that we have our voices that are important and we add something beautiful, profoundly beautiful to our environment, to the natural world. Question is, and how do we make sure uh, solutions to climate crisis comes directly from those directly? And for me, that's also like a question that I've been that I've been wrestling with. I feel that definitely it's hard to come to a concrete answer because 
it's never going to be enough. I feel that always throughout the history of social movements, like someone gets left behind, someone gets thrown under the bus for like the improvement or the assimilation of another group. And to me, that's something that's profoundly sad. So I think that in order for that to happen, I feel like Angela Davis says this really well, we have to like embrace this idea that freedom is a constant struggle and that we're never going to arrive at an answer. We're never going to arrive at a movement where the voices of the marginalized are truly represented or heard. And that's why we need to keep trying and we need to keep having these conversations. That gave me so many feels. I feel choked, so I don't even know if I can go after. Um, I'm resonating with that, Mira. <laughs> it's hitting me to the core of my soul right now. Like, uh, for me, the answers lie. So I think the quote you just quoted is, is the best way to um, summarize it, that it's a constant struggle and that we may not get to a perfect system where um, everyone's voices are included, but it's something that we have to keep trying at. And the way that I approach it is that I try to connect the questions around climate justice and bring information about climate breakdown to other movements and other spaces. And I, I do that similarly, I do that with um, the inclusion of queer trans folks. So where, whichever space I'm in, whether that's a community um, that I'm a part of or um, in my work, I work with a lot of community initiatives around um, building climate resilience and sustainability where I also find a lack of, of voices it's it's majority a lot of the work is because it's a European network it's in Europe but it's all white people and cis hetero people it's um, even if somebody would be queer it's very difficult for them to come forward and be their full selves so for me the idea is to keep pushing and keep making sure that I include the people I want to that I bring them to the table, that I make space for them, even if that means that I'm not in that space or I'm not on the table. So for me, that's very important to give up space so that others can be included. And the second way is, like I said, is to bring that, those, raise those questions within uh, communities that traditionally wouldn't um, connect the dots. Um, so recently um, there was a big, so um, in Pakistan, of course, it's one of the most deeply impacted um, countries and a climate breakdown affects all aspects of your life. And there we had on the 8th of March, uh, a big um, feminist, so feminism is kind of taking on a different <laughs> meaning in Pakistan. And there was a big uh, march organized all across uh, the country, um, a bit like the Women's March, and it was called the Aurat March in Urdu. And, and there um, in the manifesto, we made sure that there were demands around climate justice. There was inclusion of queer trans voices, that the organizers were actually themselves queer and trans. And um, we brought in people from different uh, movements together so that there was an intersectional analysis of what needs to be done. So for me, the solution is to starts at actually the analysis. If our analysis is not intersectional, our solutions will never never be intersectional. So um, and then it's about creating space for people we want there. And so that means giving up space. Um, I ask that of my white counterparts all the time in all kinds of spaces that I am in. It rarely happens, but I'm still hoping. Um, Sophia Shide. When I think about 
our voices and being part of the conversation, I also think about two main things. It's um, space and time. And if you give people space and you give people time, then something really beautiful will happen. And the problem is, is that people are moving too fast and there is no space for people to take up or even be in. Um, and just the accessibility for that and creating an accessible space, um, also feeding people and paying people for their time. I think that uh, queer and trans folks are overall like 100% underpaid and undervalued on many levels. And so how do you create time for people that are, have no time? Um, to actually be still and take up some space. And another thing I think about is how the climate movement as a whole is a very white dominated space. And how is somebody that has been silenced repetitively and also discouraged from taking up space and taking up space can be dangerous. How and why would they speak up <laughs> in those moments. Um, and so creating a truly sacred space for them to have those moments and create and build and learn, I think is something that is very powerful. I do think that there should be spaces for POC folks to be and queer and trans POC folks to be specifically, um, to be able to have that sacred space because when there is a different, there's power dynamics in the room, right? And also just acknowledging even me as a lighter skinned person what kind of power dynamic that has in a space and so i also think about like how you can't also the piece of building power how you can't truly build power in a white cis dominated space when um you are person that you are as a queer and trans or poc person and how building power creates voice and shifts and changes and then I also just think about the beauty of resilience and how without those things, you can be worn down and um, how those two things, time and space, um, also create healing and building and growth. And we can't have a movement without us actually being able to be brought together. And what I've found is that there are many beautiful, lovely, amazing people working on this work, but no one knows each other. And they are the token item of their organization to be spoken of, used, um, accessed at their will, to be put on you know, media for convenience. Um, so that they can get grants, so they can get money, so that they can get acknowledgement. Um, we are whole ass people. But the fact that um, we all need space to get together and it's just not there and there's not funding for it. And even just how beautiful this moment is of seeing all of your lovely faces right now and hearing all of your storylines and your magic that you hold and carry and thinking about the future of all the possibilities is just giving me life. Thank you all for sharing. I feel like this is so deeply affirming for me because as Sophia and many of you have kind of highlighted, the isolation of being queer and trans, right? How that creates this sense of inability to move and build and actually voice need and voice 
your needs. And so I think about the fact that like, I've been in movement spaces and oftentimes I'm the only queer, black <laughs> immigrant in the space who's bringing a very nuanced and complex understanding of violence and the root causes of oppression and who really, really wants to ensure that in building space, in being in movement, that we're being intentional about how we're building power together, right? Because it's one thing to organize and mobilize hundreds of people, but it's one thing to understand how, when we have those people in the same room, how are we going to relate to each other? How are we going to build relationships? How are we going to hold each other accountable? How are we going to reduce harm? How are we going to feed people? How are we going to pay people? How are we going to like have childcare for people? Like, there's so many needs that I can think of that our, move, our movements often forget when organizing actions or organizing, you know, moments of the whirlwind. And so for me, as many of you have highlighted, it's just about slowing down. <laughs> and I feel like in movement spaces, I'm always the one wanting to process more, wanting to have more time to really build before we, we move and, and, and take action and, and bring people into the fold. For me, it's like, are we bringing people into a culture that is about transformation? And are we including folks who are continually being transformed in that discussion, right? Because I think about the fact that my identity is fluid and constantly changing, depending on the environment I'm in, because I have to adapt, right? And these are inherent skills that I've developed over time to survive. And so with that being inherently how I move through the world, you know, thinking about collectively, that's inherently how we move through the world. What power do we have in shaping the solutions? of the climate crisis in imagining what it looks like to, to really build a world that is about fluidity and adaptation and resiliency. Um, and so with that, one of our next questions, another that you can jump in, is we've had movements for, for liberation influenced by Korean trans voices for centuries now, right? When I think about the Black Liberation Movement in the 1960s, when I think about um, the Stonewall riots, when I think about queer LGBT organizing happening in Jamaica right now. Um, queer and trans folks, we are always inherently resisting, we're always inherently um, fighting for our freedom. And so how can movements for climate justice incorporate um, lessons from movements for collaboration in the past? So what can we learn from leaders like Marsha and Sylvia Rivera? What can we learn from the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa that also led to discussions around queer and trans liberation, right? What, like, queer and trans voices have been influencing other movements for, for social justice and liberation. How can we, in the climate movement, um, take lessons from those, those movements that build people relationships, that build coalitions, that really understood how to uplift intersectionality and deep community building? Just more, more in general thinking about what is it that we can learn as organizers from our ancestors, from our transestors, from folks who fought for liberation 10, 20, hundreds of years ago. So when I think about what you just said, um, I think about the fact that history is not always accessible. Um, and knowledge in that is not always accessible. School is not always accessible. And also um, recognizing, acknowledging that POC folks in queer and trans history have been repeatedly erased. And something that I have learned personally from that is how to not erase those people and how do we center those folks um, in this conversation and also just acknowledging the dynamics and the power of whose voices are heard based on um, history and what is comfortable and what is more correct. 
So something that I also think about in this is just how do we build and communicate and work um, as in like workshops or even just speaking out against like the movies that come out about these histories. You know, something that is accessible is a movie. It's, you know, visually people see it. Uh, you can hear it. You can read it. But also there are large groups of people that are not there. So that's just something I think about in that, but also just our ancestors are powerful and tapping into that. And if we're not open, we can't hear them. Yeah, I think um, the power of storytelling, uh, because like Sophia just mentioned, the erasure that happens and the stories are told from a certain perspective by certain people. Um, that's why history is not on our side. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a revisionist history. So having our own history told over and over again, I feel is something very powerful and we need to do more of. But personally for me, what I take from um, our ancestors is the deep care they put into the people that organized with them, the relationships they built. Uh, for me, a lot of movement culture gets toxic very fast because of the internalized capitalism. Um, that all of us have some degree of um, the way we think about work, the way we think about relationships and competition with each other, the way we are performative on social media, the way we don't slow down, the way we let our bodies and our minds burn out, the way we don't create space for others to be themselves um, and show up as their full selves, um, the way we um, undervalue ourselves and forget our worth and take... Um, go into causes at very low paid salaries. There's so much of um, this internalized capitalism that I feel we need to keep countering and we have the remedies in what I said earlier and the way we care about each other, the way we build community, the way we understand systems. Um, a lot of queer and trans communities are moving away from uh, punitive cultures are moving away from uh, the prison system, are moving away from punishment. They know that there's a different way of being in this world and there's a different way of caring and showing care. That doesn't mean you forget accountability. You can still hold people accountable, but with love and care. And um, I think for me, it's really important that we start um, small with uh, the relationships we have with people around us and then expand that outwards. For me, the inner transition is connected to the outer transition and one can't happen without the other. And so that was Mira, she, her. Yeah, wow. I really resonate with what you were saying, Mira. Like, um, by the Gabby, she, her, hers. Just really resonating about like the importance of care and it's like moving beyond like structures of self-care and into communal care. It's so, so profoundly important. I feel that oftentimes, especially like as queer and trans people, we're often like ostracized and isolated from movement. So I feel like the, the emphasis on community care is something that I would add. What I'm thinking about in relation to like contributions to like movement, movements from queer and trans people, from folks like Sylvia Rivera, uh, I think about like anger and the notion of anger, the notion of the anger can be something that is generative as opposed to destructive. And it's something that I learned from reading Audre Lorde's work. 
being comfortable with anger and recognizing that anger sometimes comes from a place of needing to call out injustices. And I think that's something that um, folks like also Sylvia Rivera have done. Uh, we've seen uh, Sylvia Rivera called out cis gay and lesbian movement for uh, excluding trans women. And she got up on that stage and she called everyone in using that anger that stems from this need to create a world that's better for all of us. So I'm, I'm thinking a lot about that because I feel like in the environmental movement, uh, sometimes like, even though like I really appreciate and embrace this culture of care and caring for one another, sometimes like um, folks just forget that we need to grow and sometimes growth needs to be uncomfortable. Sometimes growth needs to be, needs to look like causing disruption because if we don't cause that disruption, then things are just gonna keep going the way that they are, things are fine. And I think that they're not because our movements always need to be more inclusive. So and tying, I think also like tying it back to like this idea of like change and embracing change change is not always bad even though we know climate change is a thing that's harming people we need to like also like think about change as not in, as not always being bad and that's something that uh, a lot of queer and trans people can also like, contribute towards the movement and i think about also like the works of octavia butler um in which he talks about like this idea of embracing that god is change so that that stands in opposition to the very colonialist, fundamentalist, Christian traditions that have been imposed on a lot of our countries, that God is static and moving towards this idea that God is change and therefore there's a lot of possibilities within us that we can grow together as communities. It's something that I also think about, uh, something that queer and trans people have brought to the movement. And here, him, hers. Um, yeah, I've been really in inspired by what everyone's said so far. One thing that feels really present for me when I think of this question of, of like, what can we learn from <clears throat> movements of the past? Um, you know, what Sophia said about histories being erased feels super resonant for me. And a lot of the times I think people that are trying to navigate how we're able to um, work towards change in this time. Um, I think, like, as they try to look to the past, um, sometimes it feels unclear whether or not we have access to those stories or the fragments of stories, and it gets gets disheartening. Um, but one thing that I think, uh, which is, I think, more of a healing practice to me than a clear answer is um, that, you know, I think as as folks identify in, uh, as part of the queer community, which is to blur the binary, which is to kind of deviate from what has been established as the norm, is just knowing or just, you know, recontextualizing that we, by our very existence of breathing and surviving and thriving in this world, that we we share like our heartbeats with our ancestors and from those that have come before us. So the emotions that we feel around despair or struggling with the world, like that 
movements of the past, like we can tap those emotions. They felt the same ways and that they worked um, monsters of issues that may have evolved to the ones that we're facing. But that always comforts me to know that that we're, if anything else, like connected by those emotions, if not by the clear stories. And one thing I think also is important is for folks that are trying to look towards those past movements is to do the work of, of researching and learning about your own ancestry and being able to see parallels between the struggles that you're experiencing now to the uh, ones that they faced in the past. So, you know, for me, it looked like looking back at Babylons and how those folks struggled against Spanish conquest. And there's a horrible things that, um, that those folks went through, you know, they were, treated as immoral and wrong by in the eyes of Catholicism and their gender transcendence was thought to be an anomaly and they like were fed to crocodiles and there's all sorts of horrible historical traumas that occurred but what they did do is they were able to have a reverence for uh, in, in their practices they were able to celebrate connections between feminine and masculine energies and being able to connect them and um, there are, are a lot of lessons that I've took from doing personal research about um, the origins of uh, where like my people have been. And um, even though there's a lot more work to do in that, you know, you can spend a lifetime looking for research in the specific context and the facts that you, um, your people have been through, just feeling comforted that they are with me by virtue of me breathing and living and being. And I think that that's something to always be reminded by that we by our very breath like are honoring our ancestors in a way um yes with reference to the last question the previous question as 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 you're speaking of um when i think of at least in our history our institutions um and well the movement towards um justice either political justice or economic justice for African governments or African institutions. One thing that I predominantly noted is, one, we occupy institutional spaces that are meant to oppress us. So my, my, I like to look at my environmental ancestor as Wangari Matai, who is a, well, was a, may she rest in peace, a global peace, a Nobel Peace Laureate as well as the founder of the Green Belt Movement. And one predominant thing, Wangari comes from a rural area. And she, well, she came from a rural area and she essentially moved into academia. And then through the movement into academia, she was able to enhance her activism. And that's actually very similar to what a lot of queer movements are doing in Botswana, for, in, in Africa, for example, in Botswana, and Kenya and previously South Africa during the apartheid system was we would want justice for association to register our NGOs or just to register ourselves in, in a form of self-organizing and then move towards the legislation of um, that colonial law, uh, which is typically a decrim on the same sex um, activities. But I find that very similar to climate change movements of wanting to associate first and then moving into getting themselves into uh, institutions. For example, knowledge, um, as the, the previous speaker 
the first speaker spoke, uh, how knowledge in itself is not spread adequately. Um, it's erased for the most part. And another one mentioned about the power of storytelling. So I see the same. I see the same thing. I think the most important facet for our movements, especially now in organizing, is to know where we came from in the in the in the climate justice movement in all of our regions, to know who the people are, um, be and not necessarily in forms of idolizing them but in in ways of seeing where the movement has been and critiquing where the movement has been that we may not continuously do the same thing and and, and you know give oppressive powers an upper hand but rather to focus on critical forms of engagement with our climate justice movement and also be comfortable with working parallel in a very parallel collaborative form for example at the end of the day we're sharing space we're sharing earth right and in the, the nature of how we will inform our activism is definitely different from the nature in which somebody, somebody from America will inform their activism. However, how you inform your activism in your region and how I do in mine affects, the, affects all of us as a globe, essentially. Affects um, the ways in which we work, also affects policy making, and even affects, taps into forms of hidden power, right? So for the most part, in, in a nutshell, I believe in occupation of selves of activists and institutions. So this, be it academically, be it politically, which is very important, be it economically. But as you are occupying, as we are occupying ourselves in institutions, we're also mindful of having a support system that is other activists supporting us in the same institutions that we are occupying in, as well as having people outside of the institutions that are also informing the, the culture. But being mindful as well to the power relations of formal and informal institutions and not necessarily to be capitalistic intensive of how we think and how we act but just the constant mindfulness of that thank you all so much for sharing i just wanted to say i know some folks have to jump off soon so i want to invite an opportunity to share um last thoughts anything that surfaced anything you want to respond to anything you're feeling and also just an invitation um to share sort of vision and dreams for when we think about the world that we are striving towards, that we're trying to create, what does that look like? Because I know Gabby, I think touched on um, the fact that freedom is a constant struggle, but I think it's also like at the same time, parallel to that, really important to continue to hold in our minds what it is the world that we're trying to create. And I think particularly queer and trans communities have been in many ways creating those worlds um, in sort of smaller iterations for a long, long time. So um, just like holding that, that hope and that vision as we close out. Mira, do you wanna go ahead? Yeah, thank you. So Mira, she, her. Um, for me, I keep tying it back to um, <laughs> something that I feel so deeply about, but for me, it's really changing the frame of how we operate and by changing the frame and the narrative for the systems i feel that we might be able to dismantle the system uh, for me um, storytelling and narrative permeate cultures science um, academia policy making um, everything's 
about the narrative you hold and the, that kind of forms your ideology and then and that's what you push for and it becomes your personal or institutional uh, institutional agenda so for me i really want to change the frame of how we operate or how we've been taught to op be, uh, operate and socialize from that of fear and competition and isolation to abundance love and care and for me, those are the basis of how we need to come together, build community with each other. And like Gabby said, um, for me, care is not just, a, it's not just self-care. It's not about caring just for those around me. It's collective care. It's community care. And how do we build that? Um, for me, um, that's been my lesson from being in different movements and how I see movements fracture and how I see toxic culture spread um, through the cultures and how I see relationships change. And in that case, for the worse, how they fracture, um, how we alienate each other. Um, that also adds to the call out culture that we have um, in social justice movements. So for me, um, all these are symptoms of the oppressed interconnected systems of oppression that we have until we start connecting those dots and start coming together. and challenging the existing predominant narrative and also modeling how we want the world to be what kind of world we want to craft a world that which in which we can all belong and be ourselves uh, for me that is crucial and for me as a parent it starts with my kid and my family it starts with healing myself and my traumas be they ancestral or childhood or uh, oppressive systems because as we know oppressive systems impact mental health so for me everything is connected uh, we're all connected we're all part of the same cosmos multiverse universe planet earth and um, that's why for me bonds and relationships are so important and how we build those relationships is so important um, but I'd also like to thank you all beautiful people. Thank you so much for creating this space, Alana and Philip. It's, it's such a beautiful conversation. And as Sophia said, historic <laughs> in so many ways. But it's been such a pleasure to listen and learn and take in and feel uh, with you all. It's been a heart-centered, uh, heart soulful conversation. And I'm so grateful and blessed, feel blessed to be part of it. I am also extremely grateful and blessed and I have so much joy in my heart right now and light and also faith and hope in the fact that I know all of these beautiful, amazing humans exist and I've been blessed by your words this morning. But I also, yes, I've been thinking since our conversation now and I'm just, our, yes, existence as queer and trans people is has been there has existed this whole time and i am just very amazed and feel the power and energy and connection even though we're not near each other um of our existence and our continuance on and moving forward and this beautiful map of interconnectedness that we are going to build and we have been building Blessed be all of your resilience and magic that you create on a daily basis, y'all.
Thank you both for joining. My heart is radiating so much love and joy for your words and wisdom. Um, but have a beautiful rest of your day, wherever in the world you are. And I hope that we can continue building after this recording and really embody those cross-dialogue, cross-border, cross-struggle relationships that we've been talking about. So yeah, thank you so much. And Gabby, you wanted to go next. Um, yeah, feel free to jump in. So I'm just like to, I'm thinking of this question and thinking of just like um, how much like community and nourishment I felt from this space, this trans and queer space. Um, we don't get to have a lot of spaces like these and that makes me really grateful just to be a part of this community, to be a part of this call. So I'm thinking a lot about just like this idea of community and thinking a lot about how my vision um, of the world, the trans and queer vision of the world includes everyone, <clears throat> including my family. I think a lot about my migrant family, about my mom, my sister, my father, those that are still living in Peru. And I think that oftentimes in a lot of US queer spaces, trans and queer spaces, oftentimes we're pushed towards like just like building our own communities. And I feel like those communities are very important. I also think that part of like undoing um, colonization and part of undoing the gender uh, system, the gender binary system that has been imposed on all people across the global south is also like recognizing uh, the potential for that. What can they, what can that do about, what can that do for our families and for the people that we care about? Um, to me, this idea of family, not necessarily in the heteronormative uh, cisnormative sense is very important. It's a uh, something that's profoundly about. It's prof profoundly relates it to who I am, to my culture, and how I relate and to others. So moving beyond individualism and towards just community care, in which um, this queer and trans world can really work towards liberating all of us, liberating all of us beyond the herd pain of colonial legacy i think that's that's my vision of the world yeah i was saying i feel sincerely grateful thank you so much aleta and philip for holding this space i never really internalized how how often really do queer do queer folk queer um people who are also and trans persons who are seeking justice of climate change how how often do we ever get to talk on a global level, but even like within each other and regionally. And I was feeling such a deep sense of, prior to the call, I was feeling such a deep sense of isolation and loneliness, predominantly when I was thinking about land and thinking about how we should be rooted in care and how we should be grounded as people. But what, how are you grounded if you don't have land, right? Um, but just through this conversation that alone, um, I'm really thinking, I'm, I'm really internalizing the words that Gabby spoke of, this is not a destination, it's more like a journey. It's a, it's a constant struggle, right? And that's how I see the movement in itself, but also I really envision a movement that's comfortable with being transformative and not necessarily reformist. So we're always talking about reforms within um, climate justice and reforms within economic justice, but we're not thinking of how we transform holistically, how we transform our way of living, how we transform politically, how we transform economically, I envision a world where the process of evolution and the process of evolving 
performative process and it's not a reformative process and it's also a process that is comfortable with um being uncomfortable it's a, it's a process where people are comfortable with speaking freely and having the freedom the, the freedom to speak mindfulness of knowing violence and speech um, so really holding space but holding each other and you know the idea of speaking they're accountable not necessarily be focused on quote our culture but holding each other with love holding each other holistically and spiritually so in understanding that the transformative nature of how we should do things or how we could do things is a nature that would look towards a more preserved evolved earth where we are not only harming it we're not here to harm but we're also here to invest and really to 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 live harmoniously as we should be really resonating with everything that everyone's saying thank you all so much um it feels it feels super healing to be in this space with you all and just to know that these conversations are you know um just ripples of more conversation to come and to just know that you know a lot of what was shared throughout this entire conversation felt like seeds to be planted um for yeah for you know a, a garden of change to emerge and i just i yeah i i know that it's it's quite a difficult thing being queer and in the context of even further than that like to be working for climate justice as as someone who is dealing with these these simultaneous and interconnected struggles of being queer in in the context of the climate movement so thank you for providing a space to to navigate both of those and and to see the relationships between the two it it feels really affirming and healing yeah and i mean to this question i think everyone really spoke to to what i would say <laughs> anyway about this world um and you know i i really I really admire and appreciate you all for being strong and resilient in the wake of everything that's happening. So yeah, my heart's with you. And um, yeah, I feel like, I feel like I just deeply resonate with what has already been shared. Yeah. um, Thank you all for sharing. I feel so just rooted and grounded in conversation and dialogue being a powerful tool for change right now. Um, I think when I think about my vision and our collective vision, for me, I think about the beauty in chaos um, in the sense that we've had, you've all, you know, we've all spoken to the pillars that have been constructed with capitalism, um, whether it's class, whether it's race, whether it's indigeneity, um, indigeneity. Um, we've had these borders constructed between us, right? and for me, if I vision a world where we're able to really embody collective liberation, we have to embrace the messiness that comes with really tearing down those pillars. Um, because being in space, building movement, mobilizing people, feeding people um, is not an easy thing, right? We all have different needs. We all have different styles and ways of communication. Um, we're all whole beings that are very that are unique to our bodies. And so if we're gonna meet our collective need, it's gonna be messy. <laughs> um, and I think the climate justice movement has really put forward this very, you know, this, this vision that is rooted in, we're coming together, we're building together, we're moving together. Um, 
but I don't think we've really sat with what that truly means on a, on a deeper level, on a core soul level. And sometimes, you know, we often don't want to talk about how scary it is. We talk about the scariness of climate crisis, but we don't talk about the scariness of what it means to actually come together. And so that's where I'm at. Like my vision is just sitting and having messy conversations with people like we're doing today. Just really being honest about where we are at, the harms that we've committed, how we're all taking part in systems of violence, but how we're all at the same time working to transform our role in that, in, in, in the violence. Um, and so for me, our vision is, our vision isn't, utopia necessarily right it's not holding hands it's like really embracing how difficult it is to hold hands in the first place um and for me the scale of this conversation right now we live in a world where we can communicate across time and and, and constructed borders um to build coalition you know you know we could continue building together we have that option of understanding how to support each other across the world and so for me, our vision also embraces that, right? Because I want to go back to what Mumbatu said earlier of like, not every, you know, we don't have, we don't all have accessibility to strike. And when I saw the, the global youth climate strike, what's, you know, what stood with me is, are we striking for climate action? Or are we striking, striking for climate justice? Because those are two different things in my world. And when I think about striking, right? Are we striking for the queer and trans youth who are incarcerated? Are we striking for the queer and trans youth who are incarcerated and then used to um, put out wildfires in, in Western California because they're basically um, providing free labor to the state. You know, are we thinking about the really nuanced, nuanced and complex ways in which queer and trans bodies are um, experiencing violence, both from our society, but also from as, as a result of the climate crisis? Um, and so for me, our, our vision is just messy. It's just, it's, it's unknown. And that's what I want to lean into. I want to lean into the unknown. And I think that's what we're all collectively embodying and embracing today. And I can't wait to see what we're able to actually build together. And I'm having a lot of ideas about what a post-conversation um, community could look like. So, um, but yeah, I want to open up space for others to share. Aleda, you can jump in. I know that you have a lot um, to talk about on this topic as well. And then we can kind of close and talk about next steps. Yeah, I, I don't have a lot to add. I'm, I'm like deeply grateful to all of you for holding this space with us, for trusting us. Um, I know that um, that's not always easy. And I think one thing I do want to say is like one of the things, one of the reasons I think these conversations and these spaces are so important is because there are voices and places where people are asking questions around like, is it the right time to talk about X, Y, Z? And like, I, it's always the right time. It's always the right time for people to full up, full, show up in their full selves and be their full selves and share their full experiences and wisdom and thoughts. And I want to grow in community with you all and creating more and more spaces where we can all um, show up fully ourselves and share whatever um, and as holy as we want to. So I'm really, really, really grateful um, for this space and this time and um, being present with everyone here. To kind of close, do we want to share an appreciation for something that somebody said on the call or just kind of, you know, this open conversation, what did, what did you appreciate? What are we taking away? Um, you know, how, is it, how are we feeling in our bodies after really unpacking so much of this? Personally, I just, I'm, my biggest takeaway is that we're not alone. 
uh, I don't feel alone. There's so many sentiments that were shared by um, Gabby and Orion and uh, Mira and Sophia that are so practical and it almost felt like somebody's literally speaking from my, from my, you know, from my voice box. So um, my biggest takeaway is how we have such a similar, under, very deepened understanding of um, colonization and the legacies of colonization. We also have a very deepened understanding of gender, um, pre-colonial, culturally, culturally speaking, with indigenous persons, with relations to indigenous persons, particularly um, referencing South Asia and Africa. There's a very strong link there that continuously keeps affirming itself. The more I have um, conversations about um, being rooted and uh, particularly when it comes to um, queer persons and, and climate justice. Um, so yeah, th those are my biggest takeaways that they, we have such a strong similarity and we are so, you know, essentially rooted in very, very intrinsic um, values uh, and understanding in terms of um, destabilizing the current, the current structures that are placed. So I don't feel alone and I, I feel deeply empowered in the nature of the work that I'm doing. And my only call to action of self is to work with the collective in mind and not only focus on, on my continent, you know, focus on the diaspora of Africa and the descendants, of course, but also really focus on, on the, the similarities I have with the global south and the lives of the marginalized persons in the global north. Yeah, so just really globally collective in my thinking. I can't agree more for sure. Um, I feel like a lot of our conversations from the very beginning, I think just brought so much affirmation and connection that we're able to see these systems of oppression at the root and see the symptoms occurring in different places. And um, yeah, I feel super honored to be able to share space with folks that are being able to see these things and are working to dismantle them. Um, and, you know, there was something that you had shared, Philip, about how, um, yeah, through beyond, beyond borders and beyond identities, there are all these different needs. And I think that, like, as a queer community of climate justice organizers, we can, um, we can work not only to dismantle the binaries of perceived um, the perceived status quo, but also dismantle the border binaries uh, that we see um, across the globe and across these different issues. So um, yeah, I feel like I'm taking away a lot of camaraderie to know that folks are out there that are doing this work. And um, I feel really comforted by that. And um, I'm super excited to continue working towards collective liberation piece by piece. Um, even if we're holding different puzzle pieces, we're connecting the dots together. So thank you. Yeah, just really want to like resonate um, for everything that's been said about just like moving and building solidarities across uh, communities, both in across different communities in the global south, uh, with marginalized communities in the global north, and also like moving beyond the borders, moving beyond the binaries, um, which to me, uh, when I think of like this moving beyond, 
I think of like the amount of like um, just that unknowingness of that and how difficult that can be sometimes and the fact that for so long like queer and trans folks have had to like weigh their responsibility and the consequences of that undoing and so I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking a lot about that and thinking a lot about communities like this one. Um just as we're doing this undoing or and stepping into um just things that uh are new in many ways are are not, not new but have been for so long obscured by colonial forces. Um just thinking about the importance of communities like this one, uh, how much, how important uh, how nourishing they are. Uh, because you walk into a climate room, um, these are the faces that are here right now, the community that's here right now, uh, at least in a lot of, uh, in large part of you is climate activism. Uh, it's not this community that you see represented. So I think some, there's something just like profoundly just um, beautiful and affirming about being in this space, about using my voice in this space and about here and seeing everyone else um, just use their voice in this space. And I think that um, what a something large, a large thing that I'm thinking away then is um, as you're moving uh, beyond the binaries that oppress us, um, just thinking about uh, how that movie being done then can be also uh, a side of love, love and appreciation and care for one another. So thank you all for having me here and for just this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful conversation. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't have a lot more to add, but I just think um, I'm deeply grateful and as Philip asked, sort of, what are we taking away? The first thing that came to mind was what, beyond just feeling deeply held and loved by the space, um, what Gabby said about um, queer and trans folks being deeply connected to and deeply of and deeply loved by nature. And um, I think that that is just such a beautiful thing to like feel in moments where, you know, maybe things get overwhelming or, you walk into a room, like you said, and, and there's not a lot of queer and trans folks in that space, just um, reminding ourselves of that interconnectedness with um, everything that we're fighting for. So thank you guys. Thank you. Grateful. Philip, I'll turn it over to you. One of the main things we want to uplift is that these conversations aren't, you know, like even though we held the space, the conversation is for the community, it's for the movement. Um, and so how are we collectively holding it and um, learning from it as we continue in our work. Thank you all for listening to this first episode of In Conversation, a listening series on collective liberation and climate justice. If you want to stay up to date about new episodes, please click subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Our Climate Voices.